0: future fossils this is Michael Garfield welcoming you back for episode 160 of the podcast that explores our place in time the conversation I had with Michael Dowd in our last episode 159 was extremely heavy and challenging so this week I wanted to bring you something a little different one of my intentions for the podcast this year is to spend more time using current media pop culture ...as a lens through which to explore some of the deep ideas that we like to unfold on this show. And there is no shortage of profound and interesting stuff out there to discuss. So in the spirit of previous conversations we've had on Future Fossils about the alien films, Westworld, Blade Runner... ...I figured I'd leave the domain of cyborg fiction for a little while here and invite my friend Stephen Hershey and Kinthia Brunette to chat about His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman and the recent BBC-HBO adaptation of this amazing novel trilogy for television. Not only did this give us an opportunity to discuss the key themes of Pullman's work, but how stories change over time as they are told and retold. What happens when you move something from one medium into another? How does it change the affordances available to storytellers? Stephen is an actor, and cynthia has a degree in human-computer interaction. So there was a lot to discuss about this particular story, in which advanced physics computers are just one of many oracular portals through which humans are able to access a divine intelligence that, in the case of His Dark Materials remains deliciously and subversively material in its instantiation it's difficult to appreciate his dark materials for what it is without putting it in historical context and so we spend some time also discussing the works of c.s lewis and how both his dark materials and the magicians Lev grossman's books about the magical world of fillery and its relationship to ours are both critical responses to the repressive religious themes articulated and performed through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and its follow-up books. Lastly, I spend a lot of time in this episode asking about the fall, the end of childhood, coming of age, stepping into one's adult identity and everything that is gained and lost in this process, and how it relates to entropy-based theories of evolution. And a cosmological statement we see not only running through this work, but also works like the Skywalker saga in Star Wars and Dan Simmons' Hyperion Cantos. In spite of the joy I imagine most of the world is feeling at the end of the Trump administration, this is nonetheless still a very good time to talk about social fragmentation and collapse and how we as a species are going through a similar coming of age, a loss of innocence, and having to relearn a new relationship to the magic of this world. But before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank, from the bottom of my heart, each and every person who has been supporting Future Fossils on Patreon. As I think I mentioned in the last episode, I started this show without any expectation that I would live to see returns on the invested time and energy it takes to put it together. But in the time since, I've become a father... And as I discussed with Android Jones back in episode 111, that completely changes one's relationship to time and to responsibility. So I'm really trying to do everything I can this year to make this a sustainable effort. Realistically, that means doubling the patronage for future fossils. So let me just quickly tell you about what I have recently dropped in the Patreon feed for supporters, as well as what we will be planning for this year. Last week, I shared a compilation, 10 Years in the Wilderness, of unreleased live performances across the American Southwest and Midwest from 2010 to 2019. I also published the first two tracks from House Ship on a Hill, a collection of new songs written while under COVID pandemic lockdown, capturing the dark, bright sublimity and tension of 2020. And this weekend, I'll be dropping a scheduling poll for the first of several book club conversations. The 2021 Future Fossils Book Club includes Tyson Yunkaporta's Sand Talk, Victor Wooten's The Music Lesson, Annie Dillard's For the Time Being, Stephen Nagmanovich's The Art of Is, Richard Powers' The Overstory, Distress by Greg Egan, Clouds, by Michael Aaron Kamins and Dark Constellations by Paula Oloicharak. I hope I'm saying that right. I don't know that I am. We might have time for some other books this year, but I think that ought to really cover a huge span of fictional and non-fictional perspectives on the deep, rich, complex, beautiful world that we live in and all of its opportunities and challenges. And if you want to get in on these conversations, I would love to have you hop on over to patreon.com slash michaelgarfield. Oh, and lastly, of course, I've decided to do some letters to the editor, ask me anything style episodes. So if you want to ask me a question directly, you can send me a DM on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or you can email futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. Serious or silly questions. Welcome. This is an experiment. And with that, I just want to take another moment specifically to thank all of the new patrons and the people who have raised their pledges for future fossils. I know this has been a hard year for everyone, so I don't want to linger on my own personal challenges. So I'll just say that this show is the kind of work I love to do. It's the kind of work that I feel does not burn me out. (laughs) And so this is the kind of work I want to emphasize, the kind of service I, I wish to grow in my life so that I can make more time for it and for the community of people that this has gathered around these ideas and these discussions so a special thanks to new patrons Cathayro McDermott Jane Sheldon Frank Haynes Jan Bereswil Josh Klinkner Zach Farr Regina Jason Knight Kelsey Joseph Emily Fordyce Matthew King and Andrew Marsh unbelievable I am so grateful to all of you for being patrons of this show. Check the show notes for links to our Facebook discussion group and our Discord server if you're interested in meeting some of these awesome people. And enjoy this refreshingly and unusually casual episode of Future Fossils. Spoiler alert! And I'll see you on the webs. Y'all, it's great. It's great to
1: gather. I'm so here. excited.
0: I'm glad that there are some people that are that are like in a more expert position to discuss this stuff because it's been years, years, years since I read these books, and so I'm just going off of like how I remember them making me feel, basically, rather than facts. You know, but that's what, what else think is there? there? Yeah. Well, I think that's
1: perfect because that, I mean, and I think that is what's happening with a lot of people. I'm not sure. I just and it was just it's fortunate for me and. I appreciate, yeah, you asking me to come and talk. It's fun. I don't know. I had just, uh, I was responding to your question. I happened to just be thinking about it a lot. Because I, yeah, I did go back and re- I went back and read, but only the second and third book, actually. I think I'm about to read The Golden Compass again, because I realized I should. And when I'm thinking about it, like, I and I look, I've been to parts of it. But I, I had read it before. I'd read it more than once, like, in the past. And the other ones, I didn't really remember at all. And so, like, after the first season, and I was like, that was pretty good. This might actually be good, then I thought I should read them again, so it's only because I did that, and then, yeah, and then I started seeing that there was all this other stuff that had been written, which I didn't even know about before, so now it could just suck me in, so it's been so it's fun to be able to talk about it
0: so uh before we really dig in, is there how would the how would the two of you like to be introduced, or how would you introduce yours I guess we could we can just we're like the recording is going, we can just just dive in sure.
2: How do I sound by the way? I
0: want to you check You sound that. great. Yeah.
1: I don't have the fancy mic like you guys. I don't. You no, you hear. sound
2: a little thinner, but that's that's okay.
1: okay. Yeah. So I can adjust
2: if you want a deeper gain. But uh that's very considerate of you. you. Like <laughs> about <laughs> deeper gain like That's
0: that's nice. Yeah. That's better. Okay. Yeah, that's a little better. Okay. Anyway, yeah, I'm I'm pumped to talk about this. I've been studying, you know. Yeah. So, you know, under my uh you might call my Christmas vacation some form of scholastic sanctuary, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, or rather did sanctuary your right, from
2: the scholastics. You're right to claim it.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So in, um, how would you, Cynthia, first, how would you introduce yourself?
1: Well, that's a good question. I was thinking that, too. Or what are my qualifications for being here? Or what, do, what do I do? Um, I. You don't
0: need qualifications.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm a lifelong sci-fi fan and reader and writer. Sometimes myself, I'm kind of playing around with writing more now. As I get a little older, I always thought I would have written more by now. But otherwise, I've done many things. I, I work at MAPS, um, which, you know, Michael, that's how Michael and I met. Um, and most of what I do there is, I mean, I think my official title right now is the CRM System Specialist. I manage our database just and, and, like, figure it out. So I solve technical problems. Um, I happen to be pretty good at that. Um, I got a degree in human-computer interaction, and so that makes me – I'm interested in design. So I, I, mean, I guess I'm a designer by training, but more of just a perpetual I, – I mean, I haven't really – made a lot of plans in my life and I am um, I was fortunate enough to be able to start working at maps about 10 years ago and I've been able to just stay there and support work that I really care about um, and so that's what I do um but the rest of the time I still yeah I'm I'm very interested in story I I went to film school when I first went to college and then I dropped out and then I ended up just getting a Degree in political science. This is—I feel like I'm telling too much of a story. This isn't, but uh, I, so I've done a, I've done a have done a lot of things. I've done a lot of things. I'm—I I, am uh, but I really am interested in stories and the way that stories shape us and impact our view of things. And that this right now just happened to be—that yeah, was resonating with me. It was good to get in touch with the world again, and it's fun to be able to talk about it. So, I cool. Think that's yes. yeah, that's a very cool long overview. I don't know how to do a bullet point. Qualified,
0: right on. Actually, that 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 brings up for me so many questions that, like, we we kind of laid out some stuff that we all wanted to talk about uh, over email in advance of this. But like, actually, reflecting on your background in human computer interaction, I think it's is actually uh, something I would. That's where I want to start after Stephen introduces himself, because I think that there's something, you know, I'm, I'm I'm really enjoying the oracular and UI related aspects of this story <laughs> now that it's on tv and it's like so much more vivid in that regard so cool. uh what yeah. about you man yeah
2: uh hello my name is Stephen hershey uh i am i guess i'm an actor and a writer uh i lived in new, new york for about 10 years uh where we where i met uh mitch bignano raven our mutual friend and that's how i met you and yeah i've been uh kind of I guess a proponent of myth and storytelling for as long as I can remember uh, it's something that I've always been always always felt like super connected to and wanting wanted to have my place in it as well I've written tons of fairy tales and and that sort of thing I have a project in production right now that is something of like a, a space fantasy and uh I so I live in these worlds a lot and I think a lot about storytelling and the way the characters are represented and the way that they're received by an audience or a reader. And specifically with Philip Pullman, I think we both have the connection with CS Lewis of being raised in a kind of, you know, I was raised in a, in a very Christian environment, very religious environment. And of course, Narnia was a big part of that. You know, Narnia was like the thing that we were all allowed to, you know, the, the fun Narnia was the fun stuff and as i got older i realized like oh there's actually something critically very wrong with this with this philosophy with this theology and then when i read his dark materials which is very much pullman's kind of response to that you know it it opened up this floodgate of uh of information and ideas and um so i really really connected with his dark materials when i first read it it just it completely blew my head open and helped shape my desire and what I, what I wanted to bring to, to narrative storytelling as well. So I'm in LA, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm doing my thing out here. And, um, uh, I'm super stoked to be talking about this because I never thought this show would ever happen.
1: <laughs> it is exciting. Yeah. Racked, yeah. I think yeah.
0: On that, we can all agree. It's, uh, I, I, I creamed a little, when I saw the announcement a couple years ago that this was happening and that it was happening with such a strong and interesting cast. My, I think, interaction with this series started when I was, God, What I don't know, I must have, I was a child, right? We were all children. I don't remember. I was in high school,
1: 95. In 95 was when the Golden Compass and the 97 and the 98.
0: Yeah, so 95, okay, so that's, yeah, I was 11 and I was just coming back like I was at the time traveling a lot between Orlando and Kansas City with my mother in her Volkswagen Eurovan from like 95 to 97, like to visit her parents a lot. And I remember listening to this book on audio tape before I ever actually read it. And the audio tape is possibly the best audio tape. Like it's the best audio version of any book I've ever heard.
1: I listened to the audiobooks actually. Though I've been trying to listen to more audiobooks because it's nice to be able to read and do other things. But I, um, but yes, yeah, so I listened to them too. I and they were, I don't know, even of of the *Subtle Knife* and *The Amber by Less, They're so good.
2: Is that the one narrated by Pullman? Yeah. Okay. But it's
0: like rich with it's like a full radio play. Like it's, yeah. it's rich with all of this music and sound effects and the voices. Like the voices. Like the voice of Yorick is just like so so perfect. And so there's something very Marshall McLuhan as far as the points I want to make in in this conversation or like the ways that I I've interpreted it because. Obviously, you know, blah, blah, blah. We live in the golden age of television. It's great when you can throw huge budgets and huge time at a story and flesh it out well. And you end up with people like the showrunners of this series who they really love this story and they really love and respect this this work. And so that's all there and and true. And yet, I like, I came in so programmed by... The media affordances of the audiobook, which interestingly, and I think this is evident in the music of like songwriters like Joseph Arthur, who's also a painter. And so he's like somebody that's inspired me a lot over the years and with whom I really kind of resonate as far as just a full on sort of splashing across different senses approach to creativity. And his songs, his production is are so visual, like the sound sounds like a painting. You know, it sounds so visual. And there's something about the radio production, or rather, you know, the, the audiobook that left it so that actually, as bad as the script was and as compromised as the film is, and I know that, Stephen, you were kind of interested in talking about the 2007 Golden Compass mm-hmm. movie. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, that like, it nonetheless felt visually a lot, like, really right to me because it felt yeah. like it looked like the audiobook sounded.
2: 100%. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so like, there's so much more creative room in there when you're adapting a, a book, like with, I remember at the, there's this, a point in the making of the story of the making of Jurassic Park where the, there was a, when it was being optioned that Spielberg had already made a deal with Universal and with Michael Crichton behind the curtain, but like they still had to go through the whole rigmarole of like taking the girl out to the dance and like doing the thing and like pretending to, and at the time Warner Brothers was proposing That Tim Burton directed. Like they were like, we will buy this film and we'll have Tim Burton do it. And it's like, you know, like that book contains both the Spielberg and the Tim Burton versions of it. And they're both Mm -hmm. like, they're like that Tim Burton Jurassic Park that was never made is still in some weird way, like as valid. Mm -hmm. But, and so like it's that you can't help but not think that kind of stuff when you're watching a series that's so explicitly multiversal. Mm -hmm. You know, like so explicitly about the other stories that are told just next door. And so, like, that's my way of rationalizing and, like, making peace with the changes that were made to the story and its presentation from, like,
2: my expectations of it. But it took some adjusting. Well, I, I think that the the Golden Compass, yeah, the 2007 film is much more of a direct parallel to what was described in the book right? The kind of, the very magical steampunk, other world, magical demons, uh, magical spirits, which is ice bears. Like it was much more colorful in that sense. And this is, this is part of the discussion though, where like when that film happened and for whatever reason, it was sabotaged or it was edited last minute in and changed and, you know, took took the momentum out of it whether, you know, whether or not that is to be belie- to be believed. The ending of the first book was filmed in its entirety with a cliffhanger and that was, you know, decided to be changed at the very last minute. So there was a, kind of a stigma already attached to this to the to the images presented in this film and the and the way that I think adaptations are, you know, encouraged to be done in Hollywood, it's like, well, okay, the next thing that happens has to be different somehow than that thing before. And I think where Jane and Jack went into this was, okay, how do we make, how do we make some creative decisions here to stand out or to be different in some way from the movie, which didn't work for whatever reason? Like we could just say that like controversy or conspiracies aside, the movie didn't work. Right. So in a way it's like, it's exciting as a creative to see an author or to see someone say like, okay, I have boundaries here or I have challenges here. And how do I, how do I orchestrate these challenges? Or how do I work within this new construct? Even as simple as like, okay, I'm we're going to cast a little girl who has brown hair instead of blonde hair, even though Lyra is described to have blonde hair. And even though, you know, when Pullman was writing Mrs. Coulter, apparently Nicole Kidman was who he had in mind when he was writing the character. Right. So there, there was a lot of things that they had to kind of shift. And I know for, you know, for a lot of people and for myself, like sometimes when you're working under constraints, the, the coolest stuff comes out of that. Right. Sometimes when you're working with certain boundaries that you, you know, you're not necessarily given ultimate freedom to do everything you could possibly think of doing. Like, They have a a more limited budget working in TV, right? So they can't have as many demons on screen. They can't necessarily make the world as kind of overtly magical and elf-like in that way that you could with a film. So it's like, okay, how do we, how do we tease it? Or how do we, how do we send little signals here and there? Or what do we save? You know, do we save all the good stuff for the ice bears? Do we, or, or the witches, right? Or, do we, do we save all the magical energy for one thing or another? So I think that, yeah, For I mean, honestly, same. Like I had a little bit of an adjustment period as well because it's like, oh, you know, that's not exactly how I imagined it. But at the end of the day, because there's so much heart involved in the production, it's like you can see that these people care so much about the characters and the story, that that part is undeniable. And once you kind of recognize that, it's like, Okay, I'm along for this ride. Like whatever it is, I mean, obviously the most notable one is like you know we we've got a difference in character for Lee Scoresby, who's a very who's very specifically one way in the book, right, and very specifically Sam Elliott, and we have Lin Manuel Miranda, who is giving a completely different take on the character, which is it's a choice, right?
0: Yeah, you know, it's 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 really hard not to like Lin Manuel Miranda.
2: It is very hard, yeah.
1: It was hard. I yeah, I that was that was so good for me. When I heard that he was in it, I was excited. I like Hamilton. I was looking forward to it. It is hard. I think it is unfortunate though. Yeah, I think it's I think that there were a few things that the first movie did did well. Like I th- I think overall okay, people agree that the first movie wasn't a success, but there were some things that it did well. And I think like about, like capturing like that that sense that pe- the visual sense that people had, which I think then reinforced that for people. And then Nicole Kidman was good, and Sam Elliott was good. They were like the best. So, like, people have problems with.
0: Yeah, the whole film was impeccably cast.
2: It totally was, yeah. And honestly, that that movie still like I would watch that movie like once a year. (laughs) Just it's just comfort food, you know. I would just be like, I just like polar bears. Like, I'm gonna watch this movie. Yeah, but go ahead, please finish that.
1: Well, I was just. I mean, I had. There's a couple things. I I just when you were talking that it's this is an exciting conversation, and I'm realizing. I had, I had been thinking about like the fact that I listened to the audiobook and like, I, so I, I like the whole medium's message kind of thing being brought in because it's true, like it does have an impact on, and the story and I listened, I actually read one part of the Book of Dust and then listened to the other one as an audiobook and like, and like, I think, I've been thinking a lot about this sense that people have, right, that the, that the tone of the story is, is wrong, is different and I think that this, right, I think it really is different than that initial one, but I, I kind of feel like the first time they were trying to kind of make it Appeal and they did a good job. Like 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 like, like the parts of it they captured, but they were they were trying to sell people like, oh, it's not actually that bad like because they, they were really worried about there being a backlash and so they really like i think leaned in on the parts that were like the showy magical right. the demons, and, and all of this, to make it this thing and, like and like muted the other part but the other part is like for me the is the no, it's always there it's the core of the story and it's like and it's so like then this this one for me feels actually more true in some ways but but i've been trying to reflect on how much of that is yeah it's new because again i did go back I, I had my memories of it from the, from when i was a kid But they were fuzzy, like saying, and, and it, but it definitely made an impression on me, especially the subtle knife. Like, it made a really strong impression on me, this like idea of cutting through into another world. Like, Mm -hmm. I remember being like, whoa. And so that was really powerful. But the detail, like, I didn't remember, but now that I'm reading it as an adult, it's definitely, I'm processing it in a different way, and I'm, I'm seeing different parts of it and appreciating different parts of it, and like, I think that there, in some ways, like, the, the thing about the world is, like, it's a magical world, but it's a place where magic is just normal. Right. So the fact that it just feels like a normal world where there right. happen to be these little parts actually, to me, feels very, you know, active. it actually
0: was kind of I was like, oh yeah, it would be mooring and mundane, like in the same sense that I, maybe I've talked about this on the show before. In 300, how they depict, this is on, I couldn't believe this in 300, how they depicted the Persians as monsters, yeah. you know, like truly like ogres, like Uruk high level. Yeah. And you're just like, are you for real? Like, are you really doing this? But of course that's how it would have felt to them, you know, right. there was something I, you know, that I do appreciate something about going for historical inaccuracy in order to like lean into creating the like the mythology of the, the people, effective right? world space of right. what you're talking about. But I mean, there's gotta be ways to do it that don't involve like overt racism. And w- this would be one of them,
2: right? Which is
0: <laughs> Steven, you had, you had a thought you wanted to stack on that. Because well, e- she brings up. A yeah, lot of there's so, too.
2: yeah, totally. There's, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about it over the past few days too. And almost in a way, because the magic is more subtle and more nuanced in Lyra's world, it allows us, I think uh, you were saying, you alluded to this, Kintia, it allows us to connect with it a little bit more um, because it's kind of closer in a way to ours or to our understanding of our world. It's not necessarily this like magical fairy tale land, which we need to suspend all disbelief to go to. You know, it's actually quite similar in a lot of ways. And they do a lot of, they make a lot of effort to draw those parallels
1: yeah, so It's a, it's a and, parallel universe.
2: Yeah. And the Egyptians too. I mean, for myself personally, like at least for the first season, like when I read the books, the Egyptians were just kind of, they didn't really make much of an impact on me. And even in the movie too. And the way they created the Egyptians stories in the show was like, Oh, I was totally locked into these people. You know, you had the big guy from game of Thrones, The night watch dude. You had the the leader. Like they were so passionate. They were so invested in saving these children. And I was like, I want to follow these guys around. Yeah, this is a heroic. Like these people will spill blood to save their land and to save their people. And you know, they go through uh, the very intimate uh, ceremony in the beginning with the demon. You know, coming into coming into uh, the final shape and showing how that. Showing how mature that is and how, how important that is, uh, in that world, that coming of age and all, all that stuff I really connected to. And I felt like it, it did a, a great job of connecting me to this magical place, but also, you know, and also with introducing Will early on as well. I know we'll probably talk about, we should talk about that, but like it allowed there to be lots of kind of. Intervening themes and and set up basically like so much of the story is just set up. It's for, true for the there's final. all act. these
1: parts is just like kind of you know stacking, and so it's you know, and I agree they did the Egyptians really well, and the Egyptians are an important part of the story.
2: Yeah, um, they're I mean, there's so much the soul of yeah. of the story. You know, they're the people. They are the people, like free spirit
1: right? people roaming around like I don't know. And you,
2: and, they're yeah, the voice. They're,
1: I guess I should just say for now, for the people listening to, and you guys know this, but like, yeah, I have read now the book of dust, these new books that have been written, and I and I didn't know that they existed until I started looking again. And but and even they're pretty recent. Like the, there's, it's it's going to be another trilogy. The third one hasn't come out yet. So, um, but but the first one is a prequel. The second one is a sequel, and the third one's going to be the conclusion to the sequel. And so it's like it gives this extra layers of context. And I, I don't want to spoil for everyone, but I, but I, I just I can't deny that it it impacted me, and I think, like, in terms of this, just setting the tone of, like, right, I'm reading it now as an adult, and latching on to the adult themes more, and they're doing a good job of representing that, so for me, it feels very resonant, but, like, I can see how, if you know like like if, if it was only the relationship i had with the story as a child like it's you know it is different but the fascinating thing about the story for me is like it's all there and going back and reading it like the deep themes are, are there i just maybe didn't pick up on them or latch onto them as much when i was younger and so it's neat and just the tiny i know you said you have more but one thing you said at the very beginning michael about the multiple adaptations being valid and the idea of there being a Tim Burton, you know, Jurassic Park up there. Um, like, I just want to say, like, I, I, thought a lot about adaptations and, and, and especially like reboots and I like, I have a, my own little rant I'll do sometimes of people to get in that space where they're like, nothing's ever original anymore. There's no, like, they think that we shouldn't be remaking everything and like I know there's a lot of it but for me it's just it's a weird at some point I adjusted and realized like remaking a story that you love like it's just like a cover song it's just like you're not going to not going to stop people from making cover songs people like and, and, like, and like and it's like and if someone did, you, there's there's different ways to do it and you can execute it in a really bad way and you can be clearly just trying to like make you know number 5 kung fu panda 5 or something like I don't know but like you, but like but but you, <laughs> you not kung fu panda is not a good example I guess because it's not like it, but but but, but Anyway, that I think when people do it with love, like you're saying, like and like yeah, like and really are remaking it, honestly it's amazing.
0: While we still have these people, Hollywood, can we? Oh wait, no, he's hmm? he's gone. Never mind. I was gonna say, can we do Buckaroo Bonsai 2, please? It's <laughs> like Hollywood. You just take a chance. You know, <laughs> it's a very small chance. Oh, it'll do come like, back. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, well, like it'll all be there. Will be like don't, there'll yeah, be a. It'll be a deep dream kind of deal <laughs> that just yeah. like does, just yeah. comes if up.
1: to be that. That's going to be a weird whole world too. Oh, we
0: yeah. are so close to that. Um, yeah. but, and, and it's so, <laughs> that's a great segue because Cynthia, I wanted to talk to you about something specific given the, the whole uh, role of computers in this story. And Stephen, you brought up the whole thing about. It being coming of age and the you know loss loss of innocence and it being you know a second expulsion from Eden story that it's a uh, mm-hmm. recursive kind Retailing of process. Of the yeah. Well, it's like it's interesting because they all know what Eve is and what it means and what right. it means for someone to be Eve and like what it means mm-hmm. that is happening again. And mm-hmm. so there's it just you know I think about that stuff. I think about like the branching river delta of entropy production. Meaning mm. like, mm. yeah, the fall is always happening and it's always happening mm-hmm. again. And entropy
2: is like one of my favorite words right now. Yeah.
0: And so <laughs> there's this thing about how Lyra's story is related a lot to Anakin Skywalker's story <laughs> you know just like this being... we had to yeah star wars well before. i was i was no, yeah. i was thinking about this i mean i know you know you and i were look just like looking for an excuse to talk about star wars <laughs> on the show but
1: azra's not quite does. That.
2: i was actually you know i thought about it and i was like no i'm not going to say it i'm not going to bring it no, but no but it's like the whole thing about to.
0: bringing balance you know, in our age, I think it's speaking out of this collective understanding that the movies like this keep getting made because there's something that we understand about how like the unifying rhetoric can only get us so far, and that part of the natural cycle of civilization is to like come apart again like when I had caveat magister and, and mm. naomi and and raven on the show a couple episodes ago and we were talking about burning man being kind of in diaspora like a lot of places a lot of communities have no physical space anymore and so what does it mean to be like just squished out into the ethers and so thinking about it in terms of this being part of this process of our evolving relationship to computers and it's just interesting how to me this this whole stream in the story they have some great scenes with Mary. Oh just, yeah! Uh, do, you, do either of you remember that the actress's name? Oh my God, Simone Kirby.
2: Yes, mm-hmm. so so extremely good. And that was one of the things too, where it was like, you know, I'm wait, you know, you're waiting. Okay, who's who's, who's she going to be? Who's going to be Mary? And are they going to do it? And like you, the moment she comes on screen, you're oh yes, they did it. They got it. They nailed it. I mean, yeah, cool. they, uh,
1: yeah. Scoresby on the. Yeah, but they've nailed a lot of the, the other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: The yeah. So that's basically the expository rant for this question around like coming of age is is a good thing. It's, you know, it's, it's a building up and a falling down at the same time. And there's something uh, about the the way that this show has appeared now. I know you, Stephen, wanted to talk about why now instead like, how is yeah. it that society can handle this now? And they couldn't handle Disney. Well, I mean, it, that's part of it is like, it, they couldn't handle Disney doing this trilogy. It's not that it couldn't happen, maybe, to, you know, in 2000. Right. I mean,
1: yeah, it was a different, like having it, and again, trying to make something be like, they were trying to market it as this big, mm-hmm. like, kids, you know, adventure movie.
2: I mean, basically, they, they were trying to make it Narnia.
1: And you're just not gonna get, yeah, so, 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 like, yeah, 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 but doing it on HBO, like, right, like, is it, it that was part of what was exciting about it when it was announced. I was like, right. Because again, they actually could, Though so it's like the the task ahead of them is very large, like the, getting the right. third season right and in trying to figure out what they're going to try right. to get, like it's it's, it's not.
2: Yeah, because uh, and and honestly, because there are, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on. But I I really want to I want to kind of go back to what you were saying, Michael, before you know about Lyra, because, uh, and I I was reading this article that Pullman wrote like right before the Subtle Knife was published. It's called The Dark Side of Narnia. And I think you can find it online, but it's not in its original publication anymore. And he, in it, he basically like outlines his criticisms of Lewis and, and the Narnia series and the way he treats his characters, especially uh Susan being one of them, one of the, one of the siblings who is basically denied entrance into paradise because she grows up because she uh, starts becoming interested in makeup. You know, it's like, I'm not going to get into how much Lewis is, would be canceled today. Like if C.S. Lewis existed today on Twitter, he would be canceled. End of story. out the outrageousness that he, the, the ideas that he puts forth in these books. It's like, it's, it's too much. But what is, what is clear is that he doesn't want his characters to grow up. He wants to keep his characters, these, these perfect little angelic, you know and even at the end of the first book you know they they grow up they do they do their thing and they become kings and queens and then they leave narnia and they become children again right and uh, even on top of that in the last battle it's real spoilers sorry they've all been dead this whole time so they died when they were children to begin with right so even more so it's like you know we're we're we I was thinking about it and like cs lewis is literally the the gobblers right? She's like, <laughs> nope, I want to keep you here. I want to keep you safe. I want to keep you precious. You are not going to grow up. You're not going to fill your head with these bad things. You're not going to sexualize anything. You're not going to lust for anything. You're not going to desire anything. You are not going to fall, right? In the story, the Garden of Eden, you are not going to eat the fruit of knowledge, which is, of course, All of our ultimate transformations, right? It's what we go through when we come of age. So Pullman, in a way, like when he made Lyra the central character of this story and when he made her objective to grow up, basically to, to embrace like the fact that like all the factions in her world are going, are trying to, you know, keep this this kind of fake innocence alive and not understand that entropy is a part of life right? That we have to go through this. We have to grow and experience suffering and experience pain in order to recognize what is pure in order to recognize that inner child and come back to it and realize like, Oh, it's always been here. So I was reminded today that
0: father McPhail in the, in Amber spyglass is like willing to destroy the, the magisterium and everything in order to, and not to destroy dust that like, alternative to right is to engage in this like suicide murder compact
1: yeah that kind of i think i've been thinking a lot about that like these like extreme reactions that the characters are having well like israel once you understand what's happening which i do think is hard there's a lot of layers of it but yeah there. there i think that it definitely you're right it's a a coming-of-age story and i think that the reason it's compelling and like lyra represents our, you know our coming of age as a species more you know it's more like i, I think it is and it's just this consciousness and awareness of other universes um and, and like our place within it and like how we come of age at that sort of level that's what's happening right now mm. i mean so, it's like, trying to like see that. like what it is and so in lyra so i feel like that they're trying to pitch that and yeah the, the central question and i i read the thing i did find you can find it online it's pretty short the um c.s lewis i was glad that you pointed that out over email Stephen. because and i and i saw it and i think it is true that like i think this that the central struggle is about what happens when we grow up is it possible to grow up without losing touch with magic and like the suggestion that it's not and the and the role that the, the church is playing in trying to control our you know, our evolution and he's clearly got a lot of feelings about that. Yeah. But and, and yeah, but but at this right, you're right. So so like do we die before is it better to die before we grow up or like what what happens if we let ourselves take that that risk? Um and that's that is Uh, That 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 is the central story, and he's still grappling with it though. That's the thing, because again, in this, there's a sequel. So like, they're the the beginning. Lyra does begin to grow up. So that's like, like, and like, so what does that mean? And how does she come to terms with her own memory of her childhood and all of that? That that's that's what's it's hard for me to unthink about now. But like that, but it reinforces that like that is what they're that is what he's really thinking about. And the other thing
2: about that is, you know, that's so special to me. It's, It's just it's it's something that's so archetypal within all of us. Like she is special. She is Eve, but she also represents every person in that same way and will also. Right. So it's not like she doesn't have some, you know, it's not like she's given a special invitation by a magical owl in the mail that says, Hey, you're special. Come to this special place and be special with us. No, it's something that's inherent in all of us. It's something that is every single person's, Birthright, and that is what the characters in the show are fighting for.
1: But she's, she, and the, like, it is significant that she can read the theometer. Um, and I, you, like, the ways that they, I, I don't know, there is, like, Lyra, I think, no, yeah, right. she, I mean, like, she well, is she the, great. yes,
2: she is the protagonist. She's, she's somehow story. Just,
1: the, just the focus of this prophecy because she, the way that she is, is, you know, that's why I think it's interesting. Like, she always, she always is a kid, but she actually has always been serious, and she's always been, like, she's very, you know, she's, she's, and she's, she's, she's both, very friendly and kind of isolated and like, and like, and what that her ability to tap into that, like just place of trusting her intuition is what is, is what, you know, is guiding her and mm-hmm. they're afraid of. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So to that point, the thing about the fall to bring up, to bring it back to what I was gesturing at earlier. I don't know if I really uh, pinned it down was that, it's about the collapse of the network that the story concludes mm-hmm. with them having to seal all of the gates between, you know the doors between worlds and um of, of course you know with with the exception of like letting this the steam valve off out of the underworld right where you like let the dead souls you know evaporate and you don't know, like close off you create a cyclical sort of cosmology or or you know or cosmogony.
1: It's true. It's weird. You want to they, they get the impression that they were trapped there, but that like, that it, so naturally they would be able to go somewhere else and somehow they weren't. And it's like she's fixing it, but actually, yeah, in order to do that, they have to tear this hole in the universe. So that is pretty weird.
0: Yeah. And so, but so like all of this reminds me a lot of uh, have you, I imagine you being fans of science fiction are some familiar with Hyperion cantos, Stan Simmons. Mm-mm.
1: I haven't, I should, I, I have, all, I get it'll oh, remind well,
0: me. Okay. Without, without ruining too much. It's this, it's a total work of literature that just happens to be science fiction. It's like, it's modern sacred text of some kind and, you know, won all of the prestigious awards to prove it. But like, it really is written in the eighties. It's like insane to think how advanced his thinking was on this stuff about, a, you know, the, our, you know, our civilization is connected across the galaxy by these, basically like jump gates that are like routers he's talking about like server packets you know like people traveling through and so people have their homes on multiple worlds you know and like you walk through a door and you're going to a different planet but it doesn't really matter because it's all instantaneous and then in those books in, in those books that network collapses for reasons the network happened to be invented by ais that we invented that be like So it's like, it's, it's this whole thing. We like, we don't understand how it works. And when it, when it falls apart, we can't put it back together. And in the wake of that, the Catholic church takes over the, all of civilization. And then like the second coming happens and it's this like teenage, it's like a 12 year old girl. And it's this whole thing. It's like, so it's like these two books are, are actually playing around with a lot of the same Ba- like pieces anyway, and like getting at some some very similar points like simmons is going for more of a almost a lovecraftian thing with the the deities in that story it's it's much more gnostic i remember reading uh this bbc radio four interview with philip pullman or it was like a q and a online q and a thing and somebody asked him about Gnosticism and he's he was just like well it's It's a fascinating and very powerful and persuasive system of thought, he said, but that the essence of Gnosticism is its rejection of the physical universe. And the whole tendency of my thinking and feeling and of the story I wrote is towards the celebration of the physical world.
2: Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that he still has this like Gnostic in a way. I mean, like, yeah, it depends on your definition of it, but he's totally tapping into the same energy.
0: Right. But it's to that point of it being and this is like all I have to say about it. To that point, to the, that point of it being like a story in which, oh, like you, we crack, we peer through the crack in the sky and there's a whole other world there mm. and, and like I'm starting to like commune with the dust and understand that the gears behind right. the cosmos, like all this stuff, these are Gnostic themes. Exactly, yeah. And yet it's, a, it's like radically disenchanting. Like at every think, step of the process, he's trying to be like, it's actually science and atheism.
1: Well, I know. think he's, He's grappling with it, not too much, but in yeah. This, that, that interview, his his thoughts on CS Lewis, it just feels more. more I think he sees the world in a certain way, uh-huh. but it, it's hard for him. Like he's trying yeah. to reconcile. He's trying to reconcile both this like mystical leaning and yeah, like you're saying this phys- the respect for the physical. That it's his whole. This is that's the whole thing he's trying to work out. Which by, is
2: which is what's so beautiful about it, in a way. Like he is. One hundred percent a philosopher. It's a, this is a philosophical fairy tale. This is a, a fairy tale that asks questions. It doesn't present answers, right? And that's that's what really drew me into it in my young mind, was saying like, oh, this this is encouraging me to wonder. This is encouraging me to ask and go further in this direction and and really think about this and really think about that. And that's what I love so much about storytelling in general is the idea to to provoke thought, right? Mm-hmm. And not necessarily like, again, anti Lewis, like Lewis, C.S. Lewis very much wrote his, his fairy tales to sustain his beliefs, right, and sustain his ideologies and, and present them in a way. And actually, so it, it's interesting, he had, I forget the name of this woman, but he had this famous debate with this uh, philosopher at some Socratic uh, symposium, you know, that that one would have back in his time. And uh she destroyed him. And he was very much up until that point, like he I know I know he converted to Christianity like later in his life, but he you know he wrote so many papers and so many like apologist style letters uh about Christianity. And she pretty much destroyed all his arguments and deflated him. And after that is when he went into Narnia. And so after that, he was kind of like struck down from his, uh, like theological pedestal, uh, cause he is a ass Like you, you can read it in his writing. He's completely tongue in cheek and, and he's, I mean, he's a brilliant writer in that, in that sense, but he, so he then went to Narnia as if to say like, okay, I'm gonna, this is where I can do my thing now. I can kind of guise it in this, and it, and it probably wasn't 100% intended, but he, Alright, I'm gonna kind of formulate my thoughts in here and kind of present my beliefs in here. And as this, as he wrote more and more of them, it became more and more clear, like how, how much he was kind of subconsciously putting his oppression and his restricted belief systems into, into this work to kind of influence children that way. And so that's again, like why I think this is such an interesting Counter argument this, this series to Lewis and to Narnia is in allowing the child to, to burst into flower and to grow and also allowing the reader through characters like Mary Malone to ask the questions that one might be asking about their belief systems, about their church, about their religion and, and feel okay with asking them, right? Like feel like, oh, I'm allowed to have this conversation. You know, but there's
1: still clearly some level of the guilt, I think, like, it is really interesting, it's a, like, I, I, you know, it's a different, it's a different take on the same sort of struggle, but they're still struggling with the, like, as the core, as I think people w- with religious backgrounds, you know, trying right. to write out stuff, and I think, I w- what I was going to say at first was, I think it, it shows this as Lyra's world, you know, uh, Lyra's world, the church and science are, like, more overlapping, like, the magisterium controls like the this like a lot of the schools, you know, and like and you know, look at the experimental theologians are mm-hmm. the quantifiers, mm-hmm. and so like it's like, like like they're this like the idea that religion is trying to explain science and not you know and like trying to unify them in some way. Like that's what that whole that that's what that whole world is. And I think the contrast is it, it, he's letting them grow up, but it's like not without danger and fear and, like, having to totally challenge it. It's not just like, hey, they could grow up. I don't know. It's like he's still, I think he's still really not sure because there's still some sort of fundamental just, like, question of this loss of innocence and, like, what it means in this feeling of, of real loss. And I think the invoking wonder, it's interesting that you said that, that, like, he's trying to invoke wonder, but C.S. Lewis is more trying to just, like, play out his belief system. It's, I mentioned in the email we were reading up to us, I keep thinking about The Magician's with regard to this, just with comparisons to Narnia, because for me, there's a lot more like Fillory and Narnia are, are like a lot more similar because they're both just little pocket worlds where things are playing out. and Like it's just like they're grappling with something. But this the, and Narnia, they are, they are both more focused on that question of like growing older, like in the magicians, they're older and they can still get there. They just need to believe like with and like in here it's like with like the the like the kids it's more about so it's like they're they're different angles of of the story but but just that Lev Grossman like when he 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 wrote this whole thing about Narnia and about C.S. Lewis and like he really liked it and he specifically said he felt like Narnia was what taught him to believe in magic and like in another universe like the idea that there was this other thing out there and that's what he's trying to capture with Fillory and honestly
2: it's it's unquestionable Uh, to me that's what's so That's what makes me so distraught about Lewis. It is very clear that he is connected to his, his imagination in such a beautiful way. And there are passages that are so outstanding and like, he is totally there at part of it, but then he just kind of slips back into his, into his thing. Yeah. it's. But yeah, it's like without Lewis, honestly, like I'm fascinated with that man. I'm fascinated with him because without him, like so much of this wouldn't, wouldn't exist. I'm so glad that Kenfee you brought up Love Grossman cuz
0: obviously all three of us wanted to talk about The Magician. I've actually never and, seen it. <laughs> oh
1: what? <laughs>
0: I know. Yeah, it's, it's, well so I right. really wanted to talk about The Magicians. The I'm like, <laughs> no, please do. I, 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 yeah,
1: it's it's cool.
0: Yeah. Wow. I guess Stephen, you live so like close to the there's something about the stage theatrics of the ensemble cast in that show that makes me feel like you're just sort of like the fifth beetle or something. Like you're, you're like, you already like are in that zone. So I think that, yeah, I think I'm just like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're just (laughs) like, you know, why would I watch my own friends like do this? But I I don't know. Maybe you'll have to tell me, you'll have to watch it and tell me I'm wrong. I'll probably tell you you're right. But that show, uh, first of all, is such a vastly more vicious critique, satire, or like weird, gross caricature of C.S. Lewis and Narnia, than yeah. his Dark Materials
2: series. Oh, was. okay, I'll watch it now. It's, yeah. a
1: it's a different part of Narnia. It's not the coming. part. Right. Right. It's just the these kids are disappearing into a fantasy world. You know, like right. Part of, you know, but there is
0: an interesting thing. Well, that just you know the whole thing with like uh, Quentin. And the fact that he is the one that's like the true believer that was so obsessed with reading those books, the Fillery books as a kid. And then yeah. he became an adult and still has the childlike heart and still was right. like, Oh my God, it was real. You will. Yes. You know, yeah. and like that, like that, that's such a big part of, that series and what sets him apart as a character in that series, I think is really key. And yet the show continues to like exfoliate and show even more horrific layers of what this fantasy world actually entails. Like season after season, you're just like, Oh God, like
1: uh, did you, but did you read the, did you read the books?
0: I did not, but I am to understand that this is another instance where we can talk about the original books and the adaptations of those books being like an opportunity to like expand yeah, the whole Batman begins metaphor. I love that metaphor that you use and I'll just take it from there. Cause I think that that's, that's a cool thing to talk about if you're up for it. Me, Yeah. Like just the whole, like Batman makes so much more sense as a ninja and like, why didn't we have that before? And so it's like, <laughs> thanks for rebooting it.
1: Yeah, you a character. You had said like it had this like Chris Nolan vibe, and I was thinking about it. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I can kind of, you know, I, I feel that. But for me, yeah, that's that's like it's it, that means it's that's the moment where Batman made more sense. Like I, I mean, like, and especially it's funny that it's Tim Burton because you were talking about the Tim Burton version in the, in the past. But like, like, oh, yeah, I'm not gonna yeah. ever do any that that Batman is great. But like, yeah, I like the parts where they dive into the nitty gritty backstory and that's what he's doing here and and is very interesting i didn't i resisted both the book and the show at first for some reason i don't know i had a friend recommend the book and i read like the beginning and i was like i don't know and and then eventually though i got into it but it's interesting it's happening it's funny because the show and the books were much more contemporaneous like it's kind of like both happening at the same time he's writing like so like like it's on the first in the first season of the show is pretty close to the first book But then after that they start to diverge, and they they're totally different, like totally totally different things happen, and and Mm -hmm. so and it's like so it's just like but it's him doing it, and so they Mm -hmm. both feel authentic, and they feel in like and you I like they're both they're just it's just like he had two different options, and he just got to play out both of them, but and it's like one of them is in writing, and and so in that one you know it's like it's different, it is parts that would be much harder to. It, like, you know, what they're choosing, they're saying, yeah, they lean into doing musical numbers and having forever and like Ellie became a sensation. And there's all this like it's like it's it's they're they're emphasizing the parts that work well as a show versus in the parts that work well as, as a book. And it was it blew my mind. Like, it's really it's really good. In the end, I definitely recommend it. That's
2: mm-hmm. the, that's a the big task with adapting. Anything is how do we capture the tone? Because so many people have their own idea of what something is in their head. Exactly.
1: Yeah, like what's right? really important?
2: It, it's like so, fan, fandom is is a real disease in that way, where like unless something is exactly or close enough to what you think it is, then it's like there's like a little your brain has to go through these adjustments. Like, oh, that's not yeah. my Batman, right? But okay, I guess I'll see it through.
1: It's kind, of, it's kind of cool that a story can speak to people on this whole bunch of different levels, but it's true. Right, part that like,
2: I love oh, that. I mean, as far as. Like I, that's also part of what I love about his dark, his dark material series is like, oh, this is a different version. This is not something I imagined the first time. This is, this is a different take. Like, okay, let's see. Let's see what this take is. Right.
0: And to that point though, again, to loop it back around to the media agency here. Thanks for bringing that up. There is something about reading that interview with Jack Thorne when he was talking about how every single creative change that they made to Philip Pullman's story was to dampen the parts that would not translate well to television and to amplify the parts that would. Hmm. And so looking at the big decision, right, which was the decision to move a bunch of the content of the second book into the first season Mm -hmm. of the TV series, you know, that was done because they really believed that you want a big ensemble cast from the very beginning, you know, and that they didn't want to like start small and narrow, and then like introduce things gradually in the way that I feel yeah. like the book's great strength is that it starts in this very—it starts literally in a closet, you know.
1: But it starts in a closet where she witnesses that, like, the man that she has been living with and trusting in a lot of ways is about to kill her uncle. Who like, right. like, so it's, it's. I was thinking. I just because I just started reading it again too, and I'm just because people like it's in some ways. I'm just pushing back, like the, it, like there is. I think if you first read the golden compass and you're getting into it, like it's true. Like there's a way that the story can just be this like fantastical mm-hmm. adventure in like, you know, the North with these bears and Aurora and like lights. And you don't know anything about what's coming. And I think for a lot of people like that sense of that, you know, is a big part of it, which makes sense. And honestly, ends, like,
2: he doesn't well. know what's coming either, especially when well, he's writing that first that's book. What
1: right? exactly that. Like, he didn't know at the time either. And so, but what now the question is now that he's written the whole story, Mm-hmm. Because like, if you look back at the trilogy, Lyra and Will's relationship is like, central. It's
2: it. It's like, right. you
1: can't. So if they, yeah, yeah so I really, like, if they, it, they need, you need mm-hmm. to understand that, and to be able to do that, like, it, I think when I, when they saw that, I would, that was the first thing that I was like, that's a really good choice. Like, it, it's yeah, just same. neat. It also, it, like, otherwise you don't even know that it's about multiple dimensions. I kept... I really like credit sequences. The credits, you know, are really good in the, mm-hmm. and, like, the, like, watching it and seeing, oh, yeah, the like... the two of them?
2: and the mirroring way each they're other. pricing
1: and stuff. Is, <sighs> there's just so much in there that yeah. I think most people don't... You, can't, you know, you, you can't understand it until... You know the whole thing, but like from the beginning, that was cool. But otherwise, yeah, Will was the only thing that planted the seed of like there is this larger story, and I think it's important that there's this larger story.
2: That also, again, it helped that the mad that Lyra's world was a little more subdued because when we did cut to Will's world, it was like, oh okay, see, there's you know, yeah. it wasn't like a huge Stark. I uh, never which, with- No, I'm going to totally disagree with you. I'll, I mean, I
0: I totally understand, but I'm just going to say for the sake of conversation, I'm just going to completely. <laughs> I, I I get it, I, you know, and I understand, you know, like it makes sense that you really want to put all the the best characters in, you know, the whole time, and like it's the same question with the way that Peter Jackson reshuffled the Lord of the Rings and like put you know put stuff from one book in another film, and you know, because it's like, well, it was chronologically happening, you know, that's when it was. That makes sense, and that's what that's what the TV's affordances make easier. You
1: have to make, cut some things out, especially in right. that case. Like well, attorney. I
0: mean, and the question of cutting stuff out is, like, that's – I'm sure we all agree there. But, like, there is something specific about – Lost is a really good example of this show, like, how every season it peeled back, like, it zoomed out one order of magnitude, and suddenly you realize the story is part of a much bigger story. And like yeah, Westworld right. does this masterfully. Like, hmm. <laughs> whatever my complaints <laughs> of Westworld season three, like I love the fact that they take it out of the park and like into the world. Well, yeah, it's you know, not but, like they had anything else going on. Oh so uh, well, we, we, well I'll see it. you outside. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but like, I just love, I love the, I love the, the pullback story where like every season. Gives you a new f- and like he did that with those books, you know, That's and, that, true. Like, did. That's, and for me, that's what it is. It's just, and it, it really is just like, yeah, it is this big complex story, but like, stay with it. Trust the, the, the narrative in the way that he himself as an author who didn't understand where the narrative was taking him trusted it, you know? And, like, you get to a place where it it is this robust, rich, very sober world that's, like, way... It's, like, I love the series for starting out fantasy and ending science fiction, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, the way
2: that it's being adapted doesn't really accommodate that. But that's okay. Well, yeah, and it it changes. Like, I think that season two definitely adds a lot more of that science fiction into the context. But for me... I mean, it's just as clear as I need to fall in love with Will and Lyra. I need to understand their relationship for it to end in the way that it does, because it ends in a way that left me in tears for a hundred pages. Just it's really
1: sad. It completely,
2: really sad. like letting go, and yeah. you can't do that with an eight-episode season where you introduce that person like midway through the story. Like you have to build that with the audience and build that trust because again, they're children. It's like, this is a very, very difficult transition to, I think, communicate and capture on screen. And so, and they just did such an amazing job with casting him too. I was like, of course, just throw him in. Like this (laughs) guy, this guy rocks. And yeah, but I totally get what you're saying as far as like, they made a choice, but inversely, like the second book is mostly about Will. And so by introducing him earlier, they allowed Lyra to take more of a center stage in season two as well and kind of right. make it more yeah. about their journey together yeah. and making omelets, which apparently she has no idea how they don't to do it. Funny... I complete, I'm, <laughs> uh, they <laughs> That's lost the me bullshit. there. <laughs> I was like, Shoot. So she doesn't understand that these eggshells, I mean, I know
0: Hatton had little <laughs> dinosaur chickens running around, you know?
1: Well, I, I, make, I didn't want to drop your, like, comments about the technology and stuff. But, like, I, I it is interesting the ways that their world are different. Because in some ways, Lyra's world feels more old-fashioned. But they do, like, it's old-fashioned. In, I think the implication is it's because it's it's much more structured and controlled by the church. So they're, like, restricting a lot of things that might happen in our world. But they still have spy flies. Yeah. And, like, they right, like, right, the, right. like they have zeppelins. That's a thing. People like to think, on, you know, some other universe, there's, you know, maybe it's the Hindenburg can happen, then they get zeppelins. There's, a, but the, there's, Every there's.
0: there's universe yeah, just, just, just. <laughs>
1: but, but there's still, there's still, high, It's It's the way you know that you're in a, you're in another
0: world. like, damn it. This is paperless and zeppelins. I'm in fringe.
1: <laughs> but they, but it is interesting the ways that, that, that there is still technology in her world. But then, like, yeah, there's not really cars or the Omnich's one is a good, it's funny, it's weird.
0: To the point, I really like that framing question just as a writing prompt yeah in a way which is like what happens if your soul is just visibly outside of yourself and you can interact with it and you're one being that's every everybody you know is one being sharing two bodies and one of them is just sort of like a hologram or whatever you know that's like mm-hmm. it's there but yeah it's like, it's, it's, just it's sort a of, little strange you know, yeah.
1: It is and so it's like, of
0: course, of course, the church would be a, a way different thing in that world and mm-hmm. a way more, probably a way more controlling thing, um, because there wouldn't be this huge separate set of people that are just like, show me the money or fuck off. You know, like the, all of the people that are like, you can't, you know, God isn't even a scientific question because you can't disprove it. Whereas like, this is interesting because it it still presents a society in which religion is based on a false, a faulty interpretation of what's actually going on. Where it's like, you know, this is Simon Dedeo at Carnegie Mellon. I just wrote a, an article about a, a paper he just co-authored about the different ways that simplicity, and bear with me here, the way, different ways that people think about simplicity and like simple explanations and what counts as simple i like, you can have a, a simple explanation that doesn't take a long time to relay it to someone, or you can have a simple explanation which is complicated, but it explains as many things as possible. So like a lot of conspiracy theories are like these Baroque instruments that are used to explain everything at once. Right. And actually that's the same impulse that motivates scientists, but scientists have a different idea of what simplicity is because they want to be able to write it on a chalkboard. Like they, they want it to be short and like easily, mm-hmm. easy to encapsulate. Explain. You know, and so like these two perspectives actually require each other in order to keep each other in check was like one of the points of this paper because we never actually know, you know, we come in with quote unquote Bayesian priors. We come in with expectations that are shaped our unique life experiences. And so all of us are bringing in invisible bias into every possible estimation of probability that we ever encounter and so yeah I don't know why I brought that up except to say that like this is where it gets really interesting into the weird like mystical computational thing going on where she's Mary Malone hasn't a relationship with the I Ching that is like preparing yeah. her to interact with the computer and that specifically to everything that y'all both have been saying uh, or, or a lot of what you've been saying over the last 20 minutes or so that Lyra loses her ability to operate the alethiometer when she grows up and has to relearn it, which Mm -hmm. seems like a big thing about our relationship to technology and like, and and to nature. And so, you know, just when you think about like human computer stuff.
1: Well, in terms of like, knowing what I was growing up, Mary Malone was a nun who like left the convent to become an academic. And so I think that is really interesting. So she's clearly like, you know, she is her own version of like, Grappling with, you know, meaning and how to be both science and 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 have a faith, have you know, science it's faith and faith and science, but and I mean, like, just to say that the core of the second part of the book of dust, which is the sequel part. So again, you know, the prequel part is that it, it's, it's the first book is totally a prequel. It's basically you like, and it's just right. like when Lyra was a baby, you find out it's the backstory on how Lyra shows up at the door of Jordan College. She's apparently like nine months old at that time, so it's like. She's a baby, but so you meet these other people and all the stuff happens and you learn a lot of things that happen um, about that story and a little bit more about Azrael, which is very interesting. Um, but and then the next one, those, yeah, and she's like in college. And so, you know, you know, so I know, right, what she's sort of struggling with and and you're like, right, she learned, she forgets, she's not, she can't use the luthiometer anymore or not intuitively. And her and Pan and honestly, a lot of it, though, is really and this is where I feel like we should we haven't really settled on if we're going to talk about just say some of what happens. Like just, I I feel like we're bouncing around a lot, assuming everybody knows what's happening, but, but I don't know, like a bunch of stuff is going to happen in season three and, you know, and some of it is very traumatic and, and in some, and so the, the book of dust is the second one in a lot of ways is Lyra just processing that trauma Mm -hmm. and just real impact like that. She, it doesn't just end and she, she's having to deal with, you Mm -hmm. know, being separated from Will and, you know, being separated from Pan during like and 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 just this just the impact of that and how that has and there's just a lot more about the like relationship with your demon and this what it means to be grown up and serious now, and so it's 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 I, it's, it's all very it, I'm I'm totally hooked I don't know I'm ready for the for the last part oh, but
2: man, I have to read them to what you're saying before though too about about the magisterium and about what the magisterium represents in in the novels in the show and his criticism of the church. I think there's a very interesting, why it's so hard for people sometimes to take in other perspectives or take in criticisms. People become very rigid in their belief systems, right? Or they become very fixated and very attached to what they think they know is true. And actually, I think it was Kevin Smith's dogma, that movie, like Chris Rock plays the 13th apostle or disciple, Rufus, and he... Has a, just an amazing, amazing moment where he says, like, ah, beliefs are, you know, whatever, screw beliefs. Like it's about, a, it's about having an idea because ideas can change. You can change a good idea, but you can't, it's harder to change a belief. People die for beliefs. People kill for beliefs. And the magisterium is, it's obviously a commentary on Catholic church and, and also Christianity in general, but it represents people who are steadfast and stoic and stuck in certain belief systems and not allowing themselves to change. Right. And it's almost like you're resisting the wrinkles in your brain, you know, like your brain wants to grow. Your brain wants to do new, to think about new things, to, to evolve in certain ways. And it's like, no, Again, we're smoothing it out. We're keeping it pure. We're not investigating anything that would antagonize what I currently believe. It's almost like a rejection of reality, right? It's regardless of whatever it is you, you perceive. It is purely saying like, no, that is separate from me. That isn't me or that isn't real. That isn't this. And like we get that with political systems. We get that with, with so many different kinds of ways that people attach themselves to like, look at, look at the world we live in. Right. It's like, I mean, we have, we have Republicans riding in the streets screaming that the election was rigged like, okay. Uh, and they believe wholeheartedly that that's true. So yeah. That, uh, and how you, can you have a conversation with that person?
1: That's the test for this next year. Huh? <laughs> you know? Well, I, I think you're right though. It's the magisterium. Like, well, the magisterium is like that, taken to an extreme though too because they're not just like hey shut like i'm not i'm not going to pay attention to that it's like no one is going to pay attention to that and in fact if we have the capability we will kill it and annihilate the option and keep like they're they're just to the extreme right. because and they're like they because they're just in full control of their world and so yeah it's like what happens if you take that to and you know and they're also just power hungry like the, the people at the Top of the magisterium, they're keeping their structures in place, which happen to involve yet preventing people from thinking that there's other options or there's you know other reasons for. I don't know. I've been thinking more and more about it, and what you said, Michael. It is interesting that it's the world where they have demons, where that happens. And you're right, like as it is, like somehow they have to explain this connection that they have to this other entity and this sense of like this, like like this, so that looks like you're like. How you deal with that and and like that that's where trying to control that connection is that's how their society evolves is that like like they're like, you know, being willing to consider severing that connection in order to retain control of people. It's just it's a it's a super, super, super extreme.
0: Well, Um, I mean, it's very. It reflects, I think, on certain, certain controversial forms of religiously slash dubious science associated child mutilation Mm -hmm. in the rest of the world. Without getting Mm -hmm. into that whole conversation, like, there's plenty there. One of the things I found that I really liked about that, that they expanded, they chose to expand in the show was Boreal's conversation with Coulter about like, look at this world. Like, right, look right. at this place. Check out this. This. I mean, I mean, maybe that's just me. Again, maybe that's just me not having read the book in a while. But like, oh, uh,
1: there was more the, the relationship with L'Oreal was is different.
0: Um, yeah. Like I, there was something about like specifically like his comments, his remarks, like they're sitting outside in a cafe table. The conversations about how I, what were these in the books? Forgive me.
2: No, he they they no. really change like the
0: market innovation in this world rather than church funded scientific <laughs> investigations.
1: Right, 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 so right. With the specters, so I think it's that that part or part of I think what Boreal is fascinated by is like he's been passing through that world as like a like as just a brief way to get between his world and Will's world for a long time, but he's terrified of the specters. And like so, his relationship with that world has always been very much one of fear. And when Missus Coulter, like, is able to control the specters, all of a sudden it's like it's a whole new option for him. And and like the idea that you could do that is just complete. And but that whole part of it is is, is they they beef that up. Like that is not that doesn't all happen. And like that and that's yeah. very interesting. The specters, I think, the specters are terrifying. I mean, that but that's the most Chris Nolan has. Like the diesel's like
0: right <laughs> in broad daylight, Nolan's just you know, the the cast like casting shadows. Yeah,
1: they're That's not how I pictured it, but I'll I'll, I'll take it. they I think right. they're very. It's very persuasive. They're they're terrifying.
0: It's just yes, yeah, it's, it's awful, and it, and it is I, okay. I'm glad that you you did say it it is it is awful. That's, that's awful. where it differs from it's the it, books it. that Coulter never gains
2: power yeah. over she, them. I think she does in the book. She she can control them.
1: Not in that. I'll just go back again. I'll look again. I Maybe just not so I
2: severely, but I, I think,
1: like, I think it, they, they just blew that part up. Yeah. A lot more. But it does, it does help a lot with the character of Mrs. Coulter and like her, and like, and again, with not too much foreshadowing, but like the, the, there's a lot more in the Book of Dust about people's relationships, adult relationships with demons and the whole, and like what it, and mm. like the, this, the ability to potentially Separate from your demon a little bit, like you know, she she knows she she leaves the monkey behind, and like that's a totally thing. And it's and like so, I like I'm thinking about that in a whole new way.
0: Which is like, haven't you ever seen like a like I'm a grown woman,
2: yeah. I love what they did with her character so much, so much. Like Ruth Wilson brings her to life in such a such a fascinating way. And I, I think in the books she was more kind of cut and dry in a way, like much more of a villain. Straight off. And here we see like with, with Ruth, with Ruth's interpretation, we see much more of a mother in conflict, you know, and she is still very much a mother, even though she is a mother who abandoned her child. She's still a mother and she's coming to, gr- coming to grips with that herself. And she's doing what she thinks is right as a mother and she embraces that with uh, with such power, and like she's one of the most interesting parts of the show for me.
1: I agree. It's in, It's been interesting. I mean, she is... They do make her seem... I don't know what it is. It, it's funny. My mom hates her. My mom's been watching it. She just... And every time she's, watching, she's like, I hate that woman. That's not... Like, like, she used like, to what? be hated. That's the point, you know? Like, yeah, yeah but it's just... Oh. And so... She's kind she, of
0: strange. Like, she's a like strange her, person. She,
1: like, well, like, it's just how it? do you get to that place where you're willing to, you know sever children right, in, right.
2: In, and in, and also the, you know like, that's how she you know she suppresses her soul to control the the spectrum yeah, right that, so that, it that all of, fits. That
1: was really in terms of finding a way to visually really just show what's different about her like other than the fact which i don't even talk about like she's the only one that we ever see who has a primate really of any kind as a demon um in the in the book of dust there's someone who has a lemur that like think that, but like otherwise, I like think that I I always thought that was kind of interesting.
0: That is interesting. Like it's it's interesting. Like all of all of the Magisterium people, it's like a fly, you know,
1: a snake, a lizard,
2: it is- <laughs> something <laughs> gross, it's a beetle, yes, a crawling reptilian <laughs> thing.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, but like none of them is- are. I love how none of them are grossed out by each other. <laughs> They're just like, oh yes. And Mr. <laughs> Beetle, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right. Sure. So like but for her,
0: so that's just an interesting thing, you know, that she's on the uh, the other end of the you know, the tree. You know, where, like that it's like she's got the primate and she's like, What are you fools? Like I'm gonna you know, dominate you all. I'm mean, gonna yeah, totally. I mean, you like so many termites from a mound. <laughs>
1: yeah. And their relationship is just clearly I mean again, they don't go into too much, but like it's clearly complicated and that, do, that do we, will be interesting you're right like i think that to see how they do if the third season which hopefully you know like if they're getting there because now they're at the point where we're going to see mrs colter taking care of lyra in a cave or like taking care of slash drugging and so like that's that's a big part to get to like i, I mean really i feel crazy. like this is,
2: the next season is just going to be insane you know we're going to get angels immediately yeah <laughs>
1: Yeah, they showed the Which angel. I was
2: hoping we would get more of in this season. Yeah,
1: I but. read it. it said that they they had filmed all seven of those episodes before COVID, and so they were able to release right, them. But yeah. There was going to shoot an eighth episode that was all about Azrael and they had to they were
0: it. they they have, they shot half of it is what I read that yeah. they were in the middle of shooting it when they had to just pull the plug. And so I got enough like,
1: angels for him to be able to like.
0: I was like, could you guys please just wrap, go back and wrap it up, just, and like do a ninth yeah. season and a nine episode? I mean, you know, we got lucky. <laughs>
1: I mean, like yeah. Balthy
0: Galactica has like season 2.5. Oh yeah. Just- yeah. 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 Just like yeah. plop it in the middle there, please. Yeah. So, but then again, there's something about like 23 episodes instead of 24, you know, 23 is a you know, magical number. Sure. Anyway. um, mm-hmm. So to, you know, to the point of uh, Coulter drugging Lyra in a cave, the last thing I really want to talk about with y'all and see what you, th- what you have to say about is how, even though this is a coming of age story, it's one of these stories where it, from beginning to end, It's all about how like being an adult is about making hard decisions and doing questionable things and how in a way it's almost like a kind of like a Rudolf Steiner thing where it's like the adults that are after liberating everyone from the demiurge end up being the next fallen revolutionaries in this ongoing recursive fractal fall that we were talking about like they and you know like Azrael and Coulter become sort of the Satan type figure you know in in like rebelling against the thing that, that you know great. and so it's just like there's just this ongoing so that, that's a very luciferic impulse like the ultimately you know this is my I, like my whole thing with you know why i like kind of using Star Trek and Star Wars as like bumpers to explore this particular issue, which is the, you know, the ethical issue of like unifying everything versus optimizing for diversity and which requires, you know, breaking the network apart and giving, you know, things a looser coupling. So there's like the whole thing about this story being a coming of age and like coming of age means, like you said earlier, Cynthia, finding out that there's a, a, a multiple, you know, there's many worlds. Other than your own, like decentering yourself, you know it's com- this Copernican humility, but it also means having to like close the door and realize that there's something inherently ontologically other about all of the other beings that you have to meet and and like accept as agents in their own you know with their own inner worlds, and so like you you know like the, it's ultimately that you can't control and like you may not even in some sense you know you may not even be able to know and so like faith reenters the the story where lyra goes and sits on the bench in oxford every summer and like mm-hmm. has this conversation with will who's sitting on his bench in his oxford and so it's it, it's i don't know just like that's my little riff on just the fact that like at the very end of the, this series and then we'll read book of dust and we'll get back together and we'll have a whole conversation about cool. that okay. that there's something about You lose your faith in your parents. God turns out to be just another parent to lose your faith in. And then like, you know, that you're one of them. So like, you lost your faith in yourself. But then at the same time, because you just have to accept that you're just part of this big mysterious world now, we end up all having to just sort of faith remains important, even if there's nothing to like have faith in.
2: 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And actually, there's a quote I want to. I want to read regarding that um that I actually used in to as an intro to one of my chapters of my unpublished memoir that I wrote 13 years ago <laughs> <laughs> so look forward to that one day <laughs> when I publish it ironically um and uh it's about Mary Malone it's it's about her belief systems changing and the quote is had she thought there was no meaning in life no purpose when god had gone yes she had thought that well there is now she said aloud and again louder there is now right and that is a conversation that i often have with people who are kind of uh you know attached to not necessarily god but some sort of greater meaning that there has to be some sort of greater purpose that i often ask well what about the purpose that you give yourself Right. What about what you bring to the table? What about the choices you make? Is not your consciousness good enough to warrant you existing in this reality? And I think this is exactly what you're talking about is exactly this kind of question where in this in this world, in this book, God exists and he is an oppressive tyrant and he needs to be taken out. Right. It's a world where Lucifer is right. And the rebellion is, is happening, right? And Azrael takes on that mantle. And he is obviously a villain in himself in his own right. But his, his purpose is understood by the world. His purpose is understood by the angels and the witches and the bears, right? So what you're talking about is the reality that Lyra enters. But it is one where people have choice. It is one where they have a spiritual free will that they're not governed by like, yes, they, because she has the ability to ask that question now, right? She has the ability to, to say, who am I, where do I fit? Where do I belong? How do I grow versus you have to exist in this system where that thing is the only it that you can uh, appeal to, right? Like she, she has created a reality where now everybody can become, enlightened to this part of themselves mm-hmm.
1: but i don't mean to dis- dismiss all of that it's good i i i'm just realizing that what i'm really struggling with now i think is the fact that yeah actually philip holman's like the the world and this idea you know you, you, it's really depressing but what he's saying what he's saying <laughs> is like saying that you have to, well so like you have free will you have a choice to a point but i i, I just sorry i'm bad a little bit but like the fact that you're your demon, more and more I've been thinking about this, the, the implications of the fact that like your demon settles when you basically, like it's puberty, like immaturity, it's like, so like you, so childhood is about having all this with these options and this and like who am I, who, like where knowing, like more innately or inher- than anybody else is, cause like all right, you, you have a part of you that can literally change shape and like you, you're like, you're trying to figure out right. who you are, but then once you settle, like that—that's what adulthood is about: coming to terms with the fact that you don't have that choice anymore. So like oh, what you're boy, saying, like, about Michael. It. It's like it's like <laughs> <laughs> you But like, it's pretty young. You're pretty young when that happens, you know. And then the rest of life is just like right. So it's like it's like who am I? And, but but I think it's it, that, that right. They're suggesting that faith is comes back then because it's like right. You you have a choice, like you're saying, Stephen. you're you're like, your agency and you your, are the
2: motivator, your, right? Whatever.
1: But like it, you're kind of set more than we are in our like more than like because I was have it.
0: My demon didn't settle until I was in my twenties.
1: <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, and, and there's just there, like
0: embarrassing
2: but true.
1: I wonder if we can like take acid. And-
2: <laughs> okay, I, all right. I just got it. I just got what you what you said. <laughs> okay, heard. <laughs> Sorry.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, but, but just, I, mean, I guess I'm for me in terms of my own processing the story is like I'm pushing back a little because I, I mean I think a lot of it is because Pullman seems to be taking it for granted and and Lewis too. To go back to like something is happening, innocence is lost. What does that mean? And like we never go back. We never, you know. And it's like it's like once you once you come to terms enough with the multiplicity of the universe to realize that you need to pick us like a horse and like be, mm. be who you are that requires acknowledging that you're being who you are in the part of this larger world and you want it to have meaning. Like you want, you want, you, you, you want that. So if it gives you meaning and like, you don't have to,
2: he actually does address it too. I mean, it it is this, yes, you're totally right. It is this, it is this strange self inquiry, but I, I believe there is a passage in the book where Lyra is talking to the Egyptians and they're talking about like fish demons, right? And she's like, "Oh, well, what if someone gets a fish demon, but they're not a fisherman?" And the response is like, "Well, that person probably doesn't know themselves very well, right sure. I mean yeah. that was actually, yeah, like he totally addressed it of like, well, sometimes that happens, and there's a conflict there, right,
1: and then, well, the again, the demon chooses its shape, like that's another thing that that like really is clear there's right, more right, of that right, right.
2: Like that. the demon chooses right.
1: But you don't control your demon. It, it, like, I think you had said we should talk about what our demons would be. And I, you do think about that. And, like, I think more about, like, I feel like if I was, like, Lyra's age, cause, like Pan has, like, a few shapes, clearly, that he likes, yeah. that he prefers. And so, like, it's like, do it, you get to a point where, like, you would have a few shapes that, that you would prefer, but then at some point, you have to just be one of them. And, like, that yeah, is the, point, yeah. really tragic. It's like, and it's, it's like a huge loss to, like, you know, and I and the water thing is a good example because I like really like water, and I can imagine as a kid in that universe, I think my demon would be like an otter, and it would be like hella fun to be yeah. able to like swim around with yeah. an otter. But then at some point, you just would have to be like, we can't do that anymore because we don't live in the water,
2: you know. Yeah. And so
1: like like you know, unless we want to, yeah, you're like maybe the demon would be like, well, fuck you, I want to live in the water, and you'd have Look to deal heart, with that. Yeah. But, like, but otherwise you have to make this choice. That it's just, it's really, it's just really quite that tragic. <laughs>
2: <laughs> at, at some point it is a, you know, a story and it's like, okay, we have yeah, to make no, kind a, of narrative a, concessions and like, all right, it's not going to be, you know, so clear, but it is a very interesting, it's a very interesting phenomenon.
0: Ooh, I want to read you this from the BBC Radio 4 interview or Q&A with him. i uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> Kathy asked, are demons born at the same time as they're humans or do they somehow appear later on? Philip Pullman responds. This is a difficult one because I've never had to think about it. I've never had to talk about how demons come into being because I didn't write a scene in which a human character was being born. The gynecology of demons is a closed book to me. <laughs> he just <laughs> refuses to answer it. What I do know is about how they get their names their parents' demons choose the name of the child's demon.
1: Oh wow! I didn't understand that. Oh I wonder wow, that's
2: yeah. it's kind of beautiful.
1: Part of what's cool about the yeah. prequel part of the Book of Dust is you get this, there's a baby Pan. Wait, so like that
2: means baby, the monkey named Pan.
1: But you don't the monkey and
2: and the, the snow leopard. leopard.
1: Yeah, but which one or how? Like yeah. Hmm. But the Pan took, like when when Larry's, I'll just say like that doesn't mean, but he definitely really thought about it as a baby then because. Like and like it's the, so the baby is like I'm a bird. I'm a I'm a tiger. I'm I'm right. like, I'm, a, I'm a I'm a dog. I'm a fly. It like it changes all the time. It's like the baby's just like did you
2: Did you all notice? I don't know if you noticed this, but you know who she she was in Logan, right? The Daphne Keen, right? So did you notice when she attacked the monkey? What form Pan took? The Wolverine. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was nice. I, fuck, I like leapt out of my seat. I was like, ah, yes. She does, like, that's, I, I'm, we haven't talked about Daphne very much. I just want to, like, throw she's in some so Daphne good. love because she's so, so, good. Good.
1: so good. I love her I, I, so I,
2: much. And she has so much of that wildness to her. She has so much of what Lyra bring. You know, the other girl was good too in the movie, but. I mean, she's got that stone cold liar thing going on. She see, she but that, that yes, and that is something actually that is very present. Like Lyra's bad, right? Yeah. In the books, she's very bad. She's a lot li- like she is a liar. She is very and and that's what I love about her a lot too is that she's just sort of shameless in that way. But Daphne brings this kind of she brings I think more of more innocence and more maturity to her, but also. This, this like ferociousness, right? This, this wildness that that I just love. To I love it when it's activated when she kind of brings that 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 passion to uh, to the table, and uh, she's she's so good. She's so. good. I
1: agree. I think it's perfect. Like it's rare. Like like, and I hear people saying like, "Oh, Lyra's too serious." Lyra's like like I'm, I'm just like I don't know. I think it's like because she's clearly just thinking about again. Like she knows who she is, and it's more like. And, and yeah, they know who she's becoming. So
0: yeah, we danced around it a little bit, but I want to hear your final thoughts. Yeah.
2: I mean, I honestly, I guess I don't know why now. I mean, I'm as surprised as I think anyone else as, as to what, you know, when it was picked up. But, um, my hope is that we're at a point now where we can, you know, we're more open to answering these, asking these questions critically like as a, as a wider audience, because obviously the book has its niche, right? The book has its fans, and and mostly in the UK. But this is important. These are important questions to ask. I think it's important to criticize. It's very important to criticize religion and criticize God and and what people believe in and and constructs. I'm um, I'm just I'm thrilled that this is an opportunity for this kind of a fairy tale to to exist. You know, I, I guess we're waking up.
0: I'm a little confused, Stephen. See, this is supposed to be a fantasy story about Mm -hmm. a world in which people can see their souls outside of themselves in the form of animals and uh, God turns out to be just the oldest angel in a glittering infinite multiverse. I was like, Mm -hmm. how is this fantasy?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's a fan, it's a, it, you're right. It's actually real. It's not a fantasy.
0: Guys, I have to go. Keep going okay. if you want, uh, or you know we. Can, Whoa, what's, we, we your can oh, what's your demon?
1: Oh, what's your Michael? demon,
0: Michael? Oh, it's an Archaeopteryx. <laughs> I've got um, done. I've
1: got That's what <laughs> I mean, demons be. Uh huh.
2: Easy. I was going to say maybe mine's a T-Rex. <laughs> Oh, that's,
1: cool. you guys are both that's actually guys.
0: why we were. That's why I we know. were introduced. That's why my <laughs> Mr. introduced us because he was like, "You have a T Rex <laughs> thing." He's like, "My friend my <laughs> Stephen super- <laughs> has a T Rex thing," and yeah, then I was like, just, "So just we met at the Eclipse Gathering," and he was like, "Oh yeah, I have a T Rex thing. I played Baby T Rex on."
2: <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> so it's like on uh,
0: Walking with Dinosaurs, the stage show, <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: Wow. Right. Yeah, that's a T-Rex thing. A T-Rex would be a pretty like that make a lot of demands on you as a demon. If you have like that there there's yeah.
0: so. <laughs> I mean like, it would be pretty. Like a <laughs> It's, it's very big. It may be like a
2: cuddly bear bird.
0: then. Yeah. Okay.
1: All right. Can't hear you. are okay.
0: you? you said? You said otter.
1: So, well, no, I think it would just be heartbroken that he couldn't be an otter. My, I go back, yeah. I think he, he, he <laughs> probably, probably, it's like a little, like a wild cat, like a little wild cat, like an mm-hmm. ocelot or some little thing. but I wouldn't be oh, surprised if he decided to be a bird. And if it was a, like, and I think if, but, but like, that would be up to him. That's the thing. Like, it'd be like the choice of being like something you could cuddle versus the ability to fly. And mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to have to make that choice, but uh, you know, I think it'd go either way. But I'm not making that choice. Claws and teeth all the way. Well, yours, yeah. yeah. If it was corn, it'd be like a, like a kestrel, like a oh, very yeah. small, very small raptor.
0: Yes, I actually, I, I, in seriousness, like if it were a contemporary animal, the kestrel is pretty, pretty they're, desirable they're, option. I, I saw one eating a a sparrow on my fence post outside my old apartment here in Santa Fe once,
2: and I was like, yes, yes, nice. this is where I want to be. <laughs> Metal in the middle. Right. of yeah. it all. Nope. All, right. all right. I love you guys. I got Thank it. you, Michael. You no, too. it's okay. Thank you,
1: Michael. Yeah, it was really nice.
2: Yeah, love it. Talk
1: you guys later. All Ooh. right. Okay. Nice to meet you. You too. Yeah, it yeah. was fun.
2: Yeah. Thanks. For- all right
0: thanks again for listening future fossils is an independent entirely listener supported program if you believe in the work that i'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future then trip on over to patreon.com slash michael garfield and become a supporter or if you're broke leave a five-star review at apple podcasts it helps more than you know Intro and outro music for this show is produced by Evan Skytree Snyder. Check the show notes for extensive follow-up resources and contact info. And have a wonderful eon.